Greetings, Amigops, and Top Tenors everywhere. This is Mike from Top Ten with Kyle and Mike. I am joined this week, as I am every week, by my delightful, freshly cut, water-sipping, back-of-his-bed-blending co-host, Kyle. Kyle is, he really looks like the scene in Pink Panther when they are dressed like the drapes and leaning up against the wall. Uh, we are really excited to talk about a topic. I heard it may actually not be a top 10, so you are in the wrong feed. Um, but we will be discussing something for some amount of time in some indeterminate structure with a guest who will introduce himself. I actually don't feel like he's earned the traditional intro because it sounds like he doesn't respect our format. So what's up, dude? Mike, you're right. Unfortunately, I have no respect for historical convention. <laughs> Just like our topic. <laughs> some historical convention. Just, <laughs> you are very respectful of some Just history. like our topic here tonight. We're here to talk about meme stocks. And essentially, what's been going on in the stock market the past couple of weeks. Uh, so, I have to interrupt real quick. So, this is totally fine and we'll definitely do this. But I was actually just talking to somebody at work today. I do have to be careful. So just to be clear, I am uh, I am a financial. I, I I guess I'll probably do the whole thing. I am a uh, licensed. I'm I have my Series Seven and sixty six safe harbor um, statements. Yeah, yeah. With Putnam Retail Management, I am not making any offers to sell any securities. We're just uh, well. I I probably should make a <laughs> no recommendation. Probably make a statement like that too because I'm a CPA too. <laughs> this should not be considered investment advice. Yeah, this is not investment advice. We're just yeah. throwing around. As a as a finance guru, this is investment <laughs> yeah. advice from me. I want that to be unequivocal. <laughs> this is absolutely That's advice. That's a Carl Ackerman certified <laughs> financial guru. Yes. Oh, I miss Ackerman. He was in the Notre Dame magazine. It was great. Yeah, he's wonderful. Inspiration in many. So, uh, Jameson, what uh, what is the angle we want to take on this? What do we want to discuss, or do we just want to kick it to an open forum? Honestly, I was going to start by talking people, and hopefully you would help me out here, Mike, talking people through the mechanics of what actually happened. Yeah. And then from there, kind of kick it to an open forum of like what this means uh, in what we've been seeing recently in the markets it's unlike anything that you would expect to happen from economics. So what what's going on and generally open. I think that's cool. I have one, I have one suggestion. I think just because we don't know what people's level of background is, let's just start more, even more one-on-one than we think. Like if you want to just walk through really simply, like it's going to sound silly to you because you're a CPA, but like, what what's a stock? What does that actually mean? What are the supply and demand forces that drive a stock price up or down? Just really simple before we get into the kind of short Great. stuff. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, because I because I know what the definition is, but why don't yes. you yeah. just why don't yeah, you, you tell say us it? what you think? As, it as means. a financial guru, Kyle is well aware of what the the stock market is and how the stonks work. <laughs> uh, Elon Musk generally calls Kyle for investment advice, is what I've heard. So, yes, I have heard that, and that is intended to be construed as investment advice. So, anyway, absolutely, let's, let's start with the basics. <laughs> a, a stock is a piece of ownership in a company. When you invest in it, 
initially a company sells stock in order to raise money and in return somebody's given a piece a piece of paper that says you own the rights to cash flow or part of the company should you choose to cash out and the reason that stocks trade at different levels and go up and down over time is that investors tend to look at how a company is performing financially and project out over many years how that company will generate cash flow in order to be returned to investors. And thus, the better a company does in either current market in in these future years, how investors project these companies will do, that'll cause the stock price to rise. On the other hand, it could be a company like Sears where you're going out of business, you're losing money, and it's not going to stop in the future. That's generally what causes stock to fall. In, Go ahead, Kyle. In the dumbest terms possible, it's like it's like buying it's like buying a Mike Trout rookie card and ex- expecting that Mike Trout's going to be the greatest of all time and you expect the value of that baseball card to increase. Exactly. But the alternative is that you the alternative is that you could accidentally buy like Dontrell Willis stock, Craig right? Rayback. Right yeah. when the like right right when the Tigers traded for him, and then all of a sudden that that D train card isn't worth as much as you paid for it. Now, and one thing that's really interesting that I think Jameson, I'm sure we'll get to, is that sort of system where people they talk about it's a discounting machine is what they say, like it's discounting what are those future dollars that I'm going to get based on my ownership? What is that worth to me now? And if everybody had the same method of evaluating a company's value, the same motivations and the same time horizons and the same costs, everybody would agree. There'd be no disagreement. You'd say, well, that's worth 100 bucks because we all have the same risks. We all have the same transaction costs, all those things. But the reality is that's not true. There are big institutions that are able to buy in size and so they get discounts. There are smaller people who are thinking in longer terms than other people who are thinking in shorter terms. And so you have all of these various motivations. And that's a big part of what I think we'll be talking about today is that not everybody has the same motivations and the same time horizons. And so that's what really the big disagreement comes to. So if you think about the Sears, the Sears is a really good example. Like if you buy Sears stock, and you're thinking about Sears as a company overall in a go forward, like five, 10 year time horizon. Well, of course you think it's not worth that. If your money is going to be in that stock and not going to come out until 10 years from now, it's hard to picture a world in which Sears is valuable in 10 years. But if you buy Sears right before they release quarterly earnings, you might be thinking to yourself, well, maybe Sears will actually sold more last quarter than people think. And the price will go up for a short amount of time. And I'll be able to sell based on that short term gain. So now I as a seller have a different time horizon than somebody else as a buyer. And we have different motivations. And it leads to these differences of opinion on values. So that's why you see stocks move around throughout the day rather than kind of um, staying flat at one given level. Though, it, to Mike's point, it's very interesting because you tend to see stock prices throughout a quarter coalesce around a certain price where most people expect it to be. It's sort of a wisdom of the crowds type of thing where it ends up. 
There's also an interesting sort of thing where, and this also comes into play here, where there are different classes of investor. And even just going outside of the sort of usual rules of who has different time horizons and different risks and different costs and all that stuff, there are different people who have just extremely different reasons to be thinking about a stock. There are some people who go on television and so they talk about stocks just generally because it gets ratings. There are people who are paid to be an analyst on either the sell side or the buy side. The distinctions don't matter, but some of those people are trying to say this stock is worth this at least in part because their company is going to help to sell stock in that company. There's people on the other side who say this stock is worth X, Y, or Z because they're paid based on whether they pick to invest in that stock. Those people are all, you'd, you'd call them all professional investors and they're all sort of part of this one class. And even within that group, there's really different motivations. Absolutely. Then you start getting into rules Different types of investors have different rules governing them. And this was a big thing that came up too. Some people can do whatever they want because of the regulations governing what they're doing. Some people are much more handcuffed. Absolutely. And speaking of those different types of investors, that brings us back to what's happened more recently with uh, GameStop and AMC being the two most sort of obvious companies that have been affected by the um, stuff that's gone on in the stock market. And talking about different types of investors, I think a lot of it really starts with the concept of a short seller. And Mike, do you want to talk us through your understanding of a short seller? Sure. I mean, I think a really good example for people before we talk about the mechanics is the movie The Big Short. So it's called The Big Short because the idea was In 2007, 2008, during the credit crunch, there was some prevailing wisdom on Wall Street about what was happening in the housing market and how what was happening in the housing market was impacting the public financial markets. So there's some sort of wisdom, and you might call that the long trade. Those are people who said, I want to go long, which is the opposite of going short. I want to buy into the risk and reward and risk and return of that particular thing. The movie's about this small group of pioneers who want to go short that wisdom. They think that rather than going with the crowd, going against the crowd will pay off for them. And it's a big, uninteresting part of the film and the book for a lot of people. The question was how to do that because not every stock or bond or whatever allows you directly to do that. And so you have to find a creative way. So like a a really good example is um, they're talking about the Super Bowl odds. So if you think about, you know, your your ticket to to bet on the Super Bowl, you can bet directly on the odds for the Buccaneers or the Chiefs to win the Super Bowl and you get a certain amount of odds. So if you want to bet on the Bucs, you bet on the box and you, I forget what they are, minus, or they're plus 125 or something, whatever it is. But you can also bet on Tom Brady to win the MVP, and his odds are much longer, but they offer different odds. So you can indirectly bet against the Buccaneers by betting against Tom Brady to win the MVP. So there's an imperfect way to get around that. 
So there is, that's kind of what that movie's about, is trying to find how can I bet against the Buccaneers to win the Super Bowl, because I'm not allowed to bet against the Buccaneers to win the Super Bowl. Hey, I'll bet on Patrick Mahomes to win the MVP. And that's kind of what that movie's about. And in this case, the idea is there's an opportunity to directly bet against the Buccaneers. Twins. Yeah. So fortunately for us, this case is a lot more simple than what happened in 2008. There's certainly not enough to make a even remotely good movie about it, but enough to make a good podcast. Well, they are going to. <laughs> I'm sure they will. <laughs> I heard that somebody bought the rights. Seriously. I forget it was like a 24 or somebody actually bought the rights. Oh, wow. Right. Ooh, if they're involved, it's going to be good. <laughs> But then do you, maybe we talk through, Jameson, do you want to explain the mechanics of actually shorting, like what actually happens? Yeah, yeah. so I'll try to do this as simply as possible because even now, in, it's not a really intuitive trade, shorting a stock. So basically what you do, if I as a single person investor wanted to go into the stock market and I decide – like a lot of uh, investors did prior to the madness of the past couple of weeks, I want to be short GameStop. What I would do is I would log into my Fidelity account or some other broker, and I would yep any any broker <laughs> any broker you, you can do this, but you would borrow a share from that broker because a lot of institutional brokers have reserves of shares that they keep on hand for essentially liquidity purposes. You borrow a share from that broker of GameStop and you immediately sell it into the market. So at that point, say games, give us a number, say say GameStop's trading at 10 bucks. You've immediately made gotten 10 bucks from that sale, but you still owe your broker that share back at some point. So essentially you've made a bet that the share price is going to go down because at some point the broker wants the share back. Say the bro it's one week later, the broker comes, knocks on your door and says, Hey, remember that share of GameStop? We want it back now. And so you have to go right back into the market and buy a share to give back uh, of GameStop to give back to your broker. Because they, you you still owe them the share. And so the, the reason you've bet against the price of the stock is the only way you make money on that trade. Because remember, you have the $10 from when you sold it the week earlier. If it now is trading at $5, you've made 5 bucks by, sell, by buying it for 5 bucks and then just giving them the share back. You've made $5 of profit on that trade. Kyle, it looks like you have a thought or a question coming here. Well, I guess two questions. One, like why I understand the the process of like betting on a, a stock's value to decrease, but like why do you have to borrow it, I guess? Like why like what about the transaction necessitates that you have to borrow the stock from somebody in the first place? Uh I So this I think- comes back to that little that question of the options for how to and unintentionally the right term, the different ways that you can you can bet against something. So there are there's direct ways, there's indirect ways, there are expensive ways, there's cheaper ways. So what you could do is you could do what they call buying a put option, which means that you say, I have the right to sell you a share at a certain price. So Kyle and I are transacting with each other. I pay Kyle a certain amount of money, which now means I have the right 
to sell Kyle a share of that stock for, for 10 bucks. And so if that stock goes down to eight bucks, I now have the right to sell him that stock for 10 bucks. I've made two bucks, X, X what I paid for it. So that's one option to do that. But there's, there's reasons you wouldn't do that. There's, <clears throat> you have to, there's a specific term on that option that you may or may not like. It's maybe a month, 90 days, whatever the, the term is. It's going to cost you directly, cost you money directly to purchase that. I might not like some of the underlying characteristics of how that ages over time and how I have to account for that over time. There's a lot of reasons why I wouldn't want to do that. But the direct shorting where I actually borrow shares, it's really, it's straightforward, it's intuitive, and it's a direct costless, in theory, we could talk about that in a second, way of betting against something. It's the simplest. If I'm betting on the Super Bowl, if I can bet for the Bucks or against the Bucks, this is the easiest way to bet for the Bucks or against the Bucks without doing something indirect or costly. So so my second question is then then what I, I think I know the answer, but then like what's the incentive of a brokerage to lend you out? Because if you're selling them back that you're just giving them back this stock at the and they don't care what the value is. You're just giving them the stock back, regardless of what you may have paid for it or bought it for. What's the incentive for a brokerage to do that in the first place? So think about it in terms of the house. This is the, you got to always think about the brokerage in this case, in this instance, is the house in Vegas. What they want to do is set the prices and the terms such that they get the action evenly distributed on both sides of something with enough of a margin for them to make money. They don't, what happens when you have a, a big institution betting one way, like really betting one way on something that could be binary outcome, yes or no, that's really, really risky. And that's a big part of when we talk about the mortgage crisis was that a lot of people betting knowingly or unknowingly in one direction on something that was gonna either be yes or no. And in this case, that brokerage, they would have probably a lot of other positions where they're actually long and they want for their positions, for their their books, they want that stock to go up. This is an opportunity to even that out. And they set the terms and they set the, the interest on the margin. And there's a lot of there's a lot of other things that are good about that for them. But kind of at a high level, it's evening out their risk. And just think, yeah, the the house in Vegas is the perfect example for the brokers because they're always going to find a way to win because they can mess around with the odds at the table um, in order to ensure being interest rates and other things that they can mess around with to make sure they always get their cut, essentially. Right. So basically, they, they would lend you the stock and they say, all right, you give it back whenever but you, you also owe us this much so like basically when you short it you need to make sure that you're like clearing that that hurdle of like whatever you owe in interest or whatever yep. right there's a there's a you could call it a vig if you want there's a, there's a vig and there's also for them they may very well have a particular position on a security and and want to be short something or want to be along something they don't typically make really big bets at the sort of institution level because it's really dangerous for them and there's a lot of regulation preventing them from doing Rightfully that. Rightfully so. But but they have a lot of like most of these companies have a lot of different arms and they have a lot of different ways to make money. And the other thing is if you think about it this way, and this is a big theme in financial services, 
getting you giving you the opportunity to short a stock also means you'll buy a stock because now that's your destination to go to sh- to buy and sell. So even if the the brokerage doesn't love that you're shorting the stock, which whatever, put aside whether they do or not, you've become the venue for trading now. And that's what they want. It attracts you there for other services that are more predictable for them and more uh, revenue. It's the platform platform effect. Yeah. Yep. The the really like explain to me like I'm six way that I kind of wrap my head around this concept the other day when I started looking into this and with some help from my brother Cam, who's really into it is like, because like to me, like stocks are they're just very arbitrary and like not very concrete. It would be like me and like 19 or like 2000 when I like see the VCR heading the way of the dinosaur. And I and I'm like, Jameson, can I borrow your VCR? And you're like, sure. Give back, though. And I'm like, yeah, of course. So then I leave your place and I sell the VCR for like ten dollars, like mm-hmm. you said. And then all of a sudden, like DVDs are the rage. And so then I like, all right. I, and then you're like, yo, give me my VCR back. And so then I go buy another VCR for like two dollars, and I pocket the eight dollars and change. Exactly. exactly to to go buy a DVD. Yeah. Right. But you like, I think the important things to know for where we're gonna go with this is that like. I was expecting that like VCRs were on the way out. And so I could anticipate the, that I could buy it back for less is one important thing. The second is that I assumed that when I went to go buy a VCR, (laughs) I'd be able to get one like at that lower price. Yep. And third and third, (laughs) you reserve the right at any time to be like, Hey motherfucker, give me my VCR back. (laughs) Yes. Yep. (laughs) Or at the very least, Hey, if right now we did that, we closed out this position, you would owe me a bunch of money. <clears throat> and so your balance on our little tr- deal here is <laughs> yeah. getting low. You got to either give me some of that stock back, some of that VCR back, or you got to give me some money. Yeah. And that's a big, that's a big part Or you'll of be story. sleeping with the fishes. Yeah. Yeah. That, and I do think that kind of brings back the point about why people are investing certain ways. There's, You'll hear people talk about fundamental investors or technical investors and fundamental investors say, hey, you know, GameStop's a terrible company and I don't like it for this list of reasons related to what's going on in the company. Therefore, based on my experience, my intuition, the data behind what I'm doing, a company in that position, it it won't succeed in the long term. So I'm looking at the company's prospects. But the other side of that, and we'll get into sort of the the like ethical piece of this because it is interesting. People can say, I'm looking at the volume in this particular stock and I know that something is happening. They talk about covering your shorts and that's a big part of this where if I look out in the marketplace and I see that a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot of people are shorting a particular stock. Even if I don't necessarily have an opinion about the stock, more often than not, I can predict that that group of people is going to have to go at some point buy the stock out in the marketplace in order to cover their position. And if I use that intuition, I say there's a huge percentage of those people and this is another kind of you know stock market way this works. If there's a lot of people buying a stock, that stock price is going up. And so I can predict based on those technical patterns rather than just the actual, like even if that company is dog crap, 
just technically, just based on the way things are going to happen that have nothing to do with the company, I have some insight into what's happening with the price. That's where you're really walking into the casino there. You're you're starting to play yeah. blackjack rather than betting on the, com- like actually looking at what the company does. Yep. Yeah. And then like in this case in, in particular, like it becomes really interesting and special when you're not just acting in your own interest, but you are controlling a hive mind of redditors <laughs> that can all exactly. do <laughs> yep. well that is one thing that i don't know if you, either did either of you guys listen to the bill simmons episode where you talked to um i can't think of his name the guy who's on cnbc and who's one of the co-creators of billions um sorkin, sorkin oh yeah andrew ross sorkin and what was kind of interesting was they were asking him and we'll, we can talk about this part later like his predictions for where this whole gamestop shenanigans will be in a couple months and it was really interesting when he was talking about the importance of if you're going to do this hive mind thing and putting aside the legality and, you know, ethicality of it, like just the practicality of it. It's a question of who you have to pick your targets, right? Like if you think about you and your buddies circling somebody in the schoolyard to bully them, right. if you pick a small kid, it doesn't take as many of you to circle the kid and, and intimidate him. But if you pick a big kid, you need a lot of friends. And so picking on AMC or GameStop is one thing. Picking on Amazon. You know, JP Morgan or Amazon or Tesla or Microsoft or whatever, that takes a much bigger group of friends. Well, can I don't want to interrupt, but can I can I ask about that? So like in this specific example, like GameStop isn't being picked on, right? Like they're just sitting there like enjoying their stock price increase or like what what does this long term mean for GameStop? So I can actually I can I can take that. Yeah, because it means precisely zero to GameStop in the long term. Right. It has no one. So let's go back to what we talked about at the very beginning. The company raises money by issuing stock into the market. But once that stock leaves their hands, it's being traded back and forth on a secondary market. It's never impacting the stock price is never impacting the amount of money that GameStop receives ever again once it's out there. They've raised their money from that initial initial offering. So once it's out there, it this, helps. This, yeah. this means nothing. It, it's really just an indication of the amount that investors think they're going to get back, like Mike was talking about, the future cash flows of the company. It can help in a couple minor ways. One way is if I'm an executive and my compensation is often linked to my stock price. Now, in this case, I would imagine there's some sort of special dispensation that the board is taking and saying, well, this isn't real. And which is which does raise interesting questions about what is real in other cases where something like this is happening in a less glaring way. But that's one piece of it. So that helps the executives, doesn't necessarily help the company. But the other piece is, as Jameson was saying, you do your initial opportunity to raise cash by issuing stock for the first time. But there is an opportunity to then do it again. And there's a risk of doing that because it could, if your company is worth, you know, 10 million bucks and you have 10 million shares outstanding, each share is worth a dollar. And if you suddenly have 20 million shares outstanding, each share is worth 50 cents. And if those 10 million shares are going to new people, everybody's shares just went down. So, when I do go to do that again, when I have issued shares and I raise some money to, you know, do whatever, I, I fund projects, I do whatever I do with that money. 
if I decide I want to do it again, the price I'm going to get will depend on what the market says my company yeah. is worth. So if now it's worth 20 bucks and I go out there and I raise stuff, everybody's happy because there's more money all around to go for those shareholders and the company gets more money. So that it does have that impact, but specific to the GameStop example, the timeline on that is so long and it's so complicated and it's so vetted that that doesn't that doesn't get to them. So the to kind of go back to your initial question, Kyle, about who's getting bullied. I guess it's the the analogy is a little bit twisted because it's like you're picking on I don't even know. It's like you're being really nice to somebody's younger brother that they hate to pick on the other person. So you're being really nice to the brother, which is really upsetting to the person who hates their little brother. Well, it's like in the VCR analogy, you're you're like fuck Kyle. That guy's such a prick for like being a dick and like borrowing Jameson's VCR. And then like you're just like like VCR is getting this glow up. But you're really just yeah, buying. Exactly. But you don't like VCRs. You're just doing it to screw with me. Yeah, you're putting them in your garage. Yeah. Right. I guess. I, I guess we kind of fast so forward. It, like the important part here is that. Yeah, yeah, we're hopping a little ahead because I wanted to start with, like, going through the the short seller potentially mindset because yeah. that's sort of what sparked the whole kickoff, or at least the narrative that's been circulating around a lot of what's happened with GameStop and AMC is that. All short sellers are bad, and I'm probably simplifying the narrative, but that's generally not much. generally what you heard coming out of uh, the Reddit page, Wall, Wall Street Bets, um, is at the center of all this. But basically, short sellers suck, and stocks should only go up, which, frankly, dear listener, that is not necessarily the case. <laughs> but short sellers can play a good role in the stock market. Obviously, um, one of the most famous examples is a short seller actually uncovered part of the fraud at Enron before the company went belly up and they took a short position in the company sort of to put their money where their mouth is. They uh, do this research, they unveil the research and also say, hey, we're backing it up with our money we think that the stock price is going to go down. Is that not insider trading? No, because they they do research. They're not get insider trading is when you get information from oh, the company. I, see. I thought you meant people at I thought you meant people at Enron were Oh doing no, no, this, no. Like that would absolutely be insider yeah. <laughs> trading. Like, what? That's no, they, for sure. You can do that? <laughs> they, these are outside firms usually like uh, th- think hedge okay. funds generally or in, yeah. any other okay. collection of capital. Um, or even yourself, like if you had the time and the wherewithal and the means to take out a gigantic short and no life (laughs) and a gigantic (laughs) amount of funds to go short on Enron in 2001, uh, dear friends, I suggest you hop in your time machine and go do that. Yeah. Get in the DeLorean. I think it's interesting, Jameson, we can kind of talk through the various reasons somebody would short a stock and like the ways that those are good or bad. But I think it, going back to the betting example, it's interesting if you think about, you said, you know, there's this idea and I've heard it. It's interesting that people say like nobody should be able to short a stock. Every stock should go up. There's there's a lot of like inherent logical flaws with that. But if you think about it in sort of the football betting, there's a really good one, which is as Vegas sets the line on a football game, they do so with 
better sentiment in mind so that they can even out their risk. So if you were only allowed, and think about it in this example, because it is important, you can currently, you can bet for the Chiefs or for the Patriots, or Jesus, Patriots. They're basically the same thing what that, right now. I know. What that really means in the stock terms is you have the option to bet for the Bucks or against the Bucks. Think of it mm-hmm. in those terms. If you could only bet for the Bucks or just sit out and not bet on them, the line would go up and up and up and up and up and up and up. And eventually the Bucks would have to win by a ton of points for them to cover mm-hmm. the bet. And if nobody's able to short that, that totally hoses the people who want to get a reasonable set of odds on them winning. Because at some point, if they're if they're minus 10, that simply doesn't reflect the reality of the game. And it's natural that that drift will happen if nobody's allowed to, to bet against them. And the same is true of financial markets. If you can't take a direct position against something and you can only take your position against it by sitting out, the opportunity for different, you know, different opinions. Think about yourself in a in a classroom, in a conversation. Like if you're only allowed to say nice things, you you don't reach the reality. You just end up in a place where everybody's saying nice stuff and nothing gets done. Yeah, I I couldn't have put it better myself. But to get to dig further into your point, Mike, though, like the best example of the good role that short sellers can play in the market is probably exposing fraud. We'll use that as the archetype for a good short seller. On the other hand, there are some, like the technical example you gave earlier, there are some short sellers who basically are pulling what I call a hit job. They release some sort of like splash, splashy headline type of research that says, oh, this company is doing xyz wrong and so we're we're shorting the stock they've already taken their position in the market saying that it's short where the stock price was people in the market come and are like oh this is bad we're gonna sell brings the stock price down and then within the day or within the week at the longest that those people close out their position and sort of walk away from that trade um, rather than really having the health of either the company or the broader stock market in mind, they've just locked in some really quick and easy profits by sort of manipulating the market in that way. And you're asking yourself, how could what Jameson just said about the Enron example be a good thing and allowed, and the other thing be not a good thing and kind of not allowed? And you're uncovering <laughs> the central mystery of this conversation, <laughs> which is... It's really hard to say, and I think if, if there's kind of one central critique of the financial markets that's worth keeping in mind, and, and not just the different rules for different like levels of sophistication, the different and often conflicting rules about your relationship to the companies that you're talking about and what that allows you to do is very strange. Like, if I am... If I work at a company and I own stock in that company, there are rules around when I can sell that stock, when I can buy that stock. There's rules about what if I put it into kind of a funky account? There's rules about what if it's a family member who owns it? What if it's options on that stock? What if it's offshore? 
like those that set of rules is a little it's very opaque and uh, often conflicting. Now, what if I'm a person who is working with that company to offer shares of the company to the public? What are my what's my set yeah. of rules? What if I'm a person who's buying that stock? What are my rules? What if I'm a person selling short in that stock? What are my rules? And I think that's where you get into, for me at least, like the, there's a lot of, you know, sort of Robin Hood take from the rich, give to the poor conversation going on uh-huh. right now. That is, I know, it's interesting and it's definitely worth having. But for me, the more glaring inconsistency in the rules has to do with what I'm allowed to say, depending on what's my relationship to the company in question. That's very odd to me. Yeah, it absolutely is. Because in some way, it it, it sort of mirrors, I think, almost a lot of First Amendment issues, not to pivot too far off the topic. In as much as like, what, what's acceptable? What, what can you say? What can you say to the market that is actually providing value to people? And when are you just lying in order to incite panic? And how, how are we as a society able to prove people coming in with ill intent? Somebody shouting fire in a theater, um, when there's not a fire. Essentially, that that yeah, those are the bad. It's the Justice short Brandeis. Sellers. What is pornography? I I know when I see yeah. it, kind of thing, right? That's the Justice Brandeis mm-hmm. quote. It's really hard to know it when you see it in in the market, and and by the time everything's pat, uh, by the time you know it, it's already happened. Is the problem? So there's no real way to. Yeah, there ain't no clawbacks either. That's the that's the really. That's the part I think people struggle with and part of the reason that there's been so much rancor that's kind of stuck around for the past, you know, almost 15 years now since the crisis is it is really difficult to look at the behavior of so many of those people and institutions and say, what was the price you paid? I know the price we paid but what was the price you as one of the perpetrators paid and it's really hard to point and, to and yeah that's exactly the point is that there's been this rancor building up amongst normal investors um sort of epitomized by this wall street bets page on reddit that takes place mostly against the hedge funds and the way that the narrative for amc and gamestop was spun is that these hedge funds, these people playing by the different rules are shorting these stocks. Basically, let's go get them, boys. And so what they did, and we'll get into a little more mechanics here, is they executed what's called a short squeeze. Order 66. They did. Precisely. So, and, <laughs> and this is more complicated than shorting a stock because there are many different ways that a short squeeze can be successful but ultimately if you remember back to earlier in the podcast episode where mike's talking mike was talking about the mechanics of ultimately closing out your short position where you have to give the share back to the brokerage where you're borrowing from uh, you have to buy the share back if you're a short seller so when a short squeeze is executed it's basically a large group of capital money that comes into a stock that's heavily shorted and they start buying the stock and that's forcing the stock price up. And then as Mike mentioned, 
a lot of uh, a lot of brokerages will take a look at your account and say, "Oh, you're really in the red. You're really losing money compared to us." So you either need to put up collateral, put up some more money in order to keep your short position, or you need to give us back our stock. Also, if it gets bad enough, if the stock price is going up enough and that brokerage has a position in it, they may want to sell their own long shares because they're they're getting out while the getting's good, basically. So in that position, the short sellers then themselves, on top of the money that's already coming in from the Wall Street bets crowd, they have to go into the market and buy more shares as well. So it starts this kind of circle. I don't want to, it's not a virtuous circle, but it's an updraft basically <laughs> on the stock price. Um, Mike, am I missing anything important there or? No. So essentially what, what you take from that is when a short squeeze is executed, it's a bunch of money coming in to buy and it starts this updraft on the stock price that perpetuates basically until the money that's behind the the sh- the short squeezers, the Wall Street bets crowd in this case, um, runs out essentially. So, and sorry, this is just like to make sure that I'm I'm keeping up. So, like in the VCR scenario, you you Mike, you notice me. I'm selling all these VCRs, and you and you're like, this guy is going to try to buy up all the VCRs in a minute when the price goes down. So you're like, I'm going to buy up all these VCRs, and. You know, and then all of a sudden, I'm running around to all the stores telling yeah. them, "Hey, those VCRs you think are worth a hundred? They're two hundred. I'll buy them for two hundred. So you will go, oh, we could raise the price. So you're buying, yeah, you're buying up all these VCRs, and then everyone else is like, oh shit, VCRs are hot. And yeah, they start, VCRs are hot. And then I'm like, fuck, like I, I, I sold that VCR for a hundred bucks, but now they're selling for two hundred dollars. Yeah, because because now you got to give me back my my VCR. Yeah, meanwhile, Jameson's like, uh, hello, um, VCRs are super hot, give me mine back. And I'm like, fuck, I, and, but also, like, the longer I wait, the more money I'm losing because it's $200 today. But if I wait till the end of the week, I'm gonna find myself paying $1,000 for a VCR that I sold for a hundred. Until at some point, I'm the last asshole holding a VCR and realizing people don't watch VCRs anymore. Until that happens. At some point. So, so here's here and, and this goes into my question. So like why so like this 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 concept of a short squeeze is it's not like it's not like Reddit invented this like last month, nope. right? What no. what exactly, right? So like can you explain I think I have a, an inkling of understanding of like why this is the case, but why have we not seen why doesn't this happen more frequently? Like what's special in this specific case about GameStop and Wall Street bets that makes it such a big deal? It's a long answer because it's there's a lot of things. One is that it, this is one of the oldest and most well-known Wall Street grifts. And so people are very alert to it. And it's understood that kind of doing this out in the open is no bueno. That's one thing. The second thing is that it does happen, but it happens in more under-the-radar ways. So part of the the anti-hedge fund sentiment, which I think is very oh, absolutely. absolutely, is that hedge funds, hedge funds have this <laughs> reputation for these things that they call idea dinners, wherein different hedge funds, all ha- who are putatively competing with each other, 
will meet up and they chat and they say, oh, how about that GameStop? They're not on a board. It's not public. And they're smart enough and sophisticated enough to know how to do it in such a way that it doesn't raise alarm. Because if you pulled off this grift and you made, you know, 10% off of it rather than 400%, you'd get away with it. So there's that. that it, and that's part of the anger against the hedge funds that I think is very fair is the idea that there's a way of doing this that's considered acceptable, but really it's fundamentally the same thing. And I think the other thing is, the other reason it doesn't happen is it's really risky. I guess there's two more things. It's really risky because of what can happen, because it's not backed by any sort of fundamental reason for the stock to be what's where it is. And the last thing is, it's really hard to to coordinate that much money to make this happen because this can't happen if just Kyle Jameson and I decide to do it we don't have enough money so you need to either control a ton of money in which case you're one of those sophisticated investors who says I know how to do this the quote unquote right way or I don't do it because I know it's not right or I'm a person who has to then find a ton of friends and the only way to do that is the internet, and that's new, and right. it has to be on a small stock. It, exactly. So that's so that's the difference, right? Is like before it would require one entity with like a fuck ton of money to go buy up every single VCR they could find. Whereas the difference the difference now is that like instead of having one person with a million dollars, you have a hundred thousand people with ten dollars or whatever. So like, yep. it's I I don't know. It's really interesting to me, and I think like. What's also interesting is that, like, normally if you have that many people, you can you can count on, like, some percentage of those people to act in their best interest and fuck over everybody else. And, like, Reddit specifically has this, like, weird, we said it earlier, like, this weird hive mind mentality where, like, all of a sudden this, like, this group of, like, all these fucking people is behaving like one entity that has the group's best interests at heart. Even if that's not 100% true, it's, like, substantially true. Which is, like, to me, like, that's the weird and, like, unique part about it and my, like, my guru kind of perspective on it. Like, that, to me, is the part that is interesting and, like, is is fresh and new. That, that's exactly it, because I think if there's one sort of novel thing, people say there's nothing new under the sun. Well, this is brand new, is um, small, everyday traders, like, single investors being able to coordinate to pull off a short squeeze. And so that's what sort of caught the pundits' attention. That's what caught the CNBC crowd by surprise and why this received so much press coverage. But also the extreme movement in the stock price because usually you're seeing these shorts and short squeezes played out on a much more covert basis, like Mike said, where the movements in the stock price aren't as big because each of the investors know that they can't move the stock too much without tipping off some regulator or another to something kind of some kind of grift is going on. It's also interesting because I hope my hope from this is that the takeaway is not we should be super concerned about the behavior of retail investors now so much as it is we should be concerned about the regulatory regime for institutional investors in the past and addressing that going forward because 
and this is a little bit less interesting, but part of the reason that this is possible now is we talk, I, I mentioned at the beginning the idea of frictions or different motivations and costs and like what are the things that are kind of making us think differently about how we invest. And a lot of that has changed. So like a really popular example of an expensive stock is Berkshire Hathaway, which is Warren Buffett's company. And the share price is $200,000 or so. So historically, to buy a share of that company, you had to have at least $200,000. And you had to have more, really, because otherwise all your money would be in Berkshire Hathaway. So in order to buy that and a lot of other companies, you had to have the full share price. Now there's something they call fractional shares. So instead of buying a whole share of Berkshire Hathaway at 200000 I could buy a thousandth of, thousandth of a share at 200 bucks. So that's one thing. Now, and you'll see this on TV all the time, they'll talk about like commission-free equity trades on Fidelity or Schwab or whoever you'll see it on television all the time. That was another thing that was preventing mom and pop from doing what the big banks and the big financial institutions were doing was it cost too much money. And at a small trade size, a 5 or $10 commission could knock out your profits. And so it's democratizing a lot of the things that Wall Street has long been doing. And think about it this way. Think about like the military. So you give the military a bunch of weapons that in their hands are tools to, to get the job done that they were intended to perform. And under a certain set of shared rules and principles... In most circumstances, you can assume that they're going to be kind of doing what you think they're supposed to be doing. There will be high profile things go wrong that you say, oh, wow, that's kind of alarming. But it's not until those those weapons or those tools get outside of the hands of a group of people who have some shared understanding of what they're for and what's right and what's wrong. But the conclusion, at least for me, shouldn't be, hey, regular people shouldn't have military grade weapons. It's more like, hey, kind of nobody should. It's it's more like, I think nobody should have access to that without greater oversight. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. See, I mean, I know it's like a, it's like a goofy example. I just, I just think that, <laughs> I, I just love, like, someone's going to clip this and be like, Mike says that ordinary citizens should have access to military-grade weapons. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you, Tucker Carlson's going to be after you tomorrow night. Yeah. Yeah, I know. He's, he'll, <laughs> he'll call me and be like, what's up, man? You want to be my best friend? I'm like, no, yeah. thank you. I'd, I'd kind of rather not. Hey, Mike, get um, a raise on the phone. <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> They're hoping for an endorsement. Um, <laughs> no, but it's but it's definitely it's definitely interesting. And that's that's where I hope this goes, because I'm I'm concerned that the easier target of like, how do we fix this from happening again is ready. Yeah. And that's fine, but they're not the problem. They're right. a, a problem, but the real problem is that the rules are confusing and don't work for people. That's the real problem. Yeah, they're archaic. There are too many check-the-box exercises well, in the market. And uh, sorry, Kyle, just before you hop in, I'm to me, I'm actually worried about the insta- or the retail investors myself because – these are people who don't have the understanding of a Mike Giuliano or even a Kyle who, who went to, uh, who took a finance class in college. Uh, you can't assume that's what's happening at the retail investor level. These people don't understand what they're actually doing and they are going to lose a lot of money in case, if these cases keep happening. 
as we've already seen, as the stock prices have started to come back to earth, I mean, GameStop's back down to 50 bucks a share after topping out at around 420.69. Thanks to our friend Alec for that um, research note. <laughs> um, after topping out at 420.69 or last week. Yeah. Is, is there a, is there a case to be made that like, there's actually not a, and I'm not like, I'm not advocating for this. I'm, I'm, I'm actually just putting it out there. Is there a case to be made that there's actually not a problem and that this is just like a market correction? So like going forward, it'll just be understood that it's really fucking risky to short a stock to the degree where like you'd be super fucked if someone tried to squeeze you on it. Like, is this just the invention of gunpowder and now like it's risky to go into battle with bows and arrows. Like what's the, like, do you see it as that? I can start with. That's an interest. It's a kind of an interesting point. Ultimately, I would agree with you. Yes, because ultimately the market's going to correct in the long term, because when you get back to it, the fundamentals are going to drive the stock price over the long term. The concern to me is just circling back to what I said, who's going to be left holding the bag basically who's going to be the people who are hurt by this more often than not it's going to be the retail investors who are least situated to sort of cushion the blow because they're not sophisticated enough and also because the amount of capital that institutional investors bring to the table people are kidding themselves themselves if they don't think that institutional investors were playing both sides of this market that happened in GameStop and AMC. They have enough capital that that was going to happen either way. You may have pushed one small hedge fund over the brink that was all in on the shorts, but for the the bigger groups that tend to play by the more opaque and shady rules, um, I think I heard the... I don't know if I really want to mention it, but I've heard some names thrown around of <laughs> big hedge funds and those guys aren't hurting a bit. They're they're coming out just fine, if not better than they were before. But I think I and I and I agree in the like in the question of this particular circumstance. But I do think it's it's kind of worth asking going forward how to a address the market dynamics that allowed something like this to happen, and b how to address the market dynamics that allowed this to happen without people knowing already. Yeah. And I think, and I think that's kind of the complicated question. And I think to Kyle's point about the gunpowder thing, I think that's largely right. That it's, it's a thing where you kind of, hopefully this re- makes people across kind of the spectrum recognize how risky it is to do certain things in the financial markets. But I think the reality is you kind of, you do for the health of the system, you need both bets to be placed. So you need yes and no to be bet. And you need to have a system in place that allows people to comfortably bet both of those things. And that's why they have stuff like the margin requirements that Jameson was mentioning. That's why, there are all these rules in place to try to make sure people do feel comfortable shorting because it is a really important market function. But I think the issue here is that there's a lack of trust, rightly so, from retail investors that the market is kind of going to work to protect them. 
and the market did not protect them in this case. And I think there is there is an argument to be made, like Jameson saying that it didn't protect them from themselves, but I think more fundamentally, it didn't protect them from a market that meant they had to protect themselves. Can you can you guys explain to me what the implications are of like? Because I saw there was a lot of outrage about how like some of these platforms were like manipulating people's ability to buy or sell or specifically to buy more of some of these stocks. Walk me through that because I don't understand the implications of it. And I let me know if that's not a relevant point to make. At oh, this it absolutely but it is. feels like. Um, and I can talk to it a bit at the top level, but I certainly I certainly still don't know all the nuances of it. But to my it, the the initial problem to me comes back to Mike's point from just a minute ago in that you need to be able to allow people to buy and sell stocks sort of freely and on the same terms as other people. Because what Robinhood did is they prevented people from buying the stock during a certain time frame. And ultimately, it, it doesn't necessarily seem targeted at first glance because they just shut it down for the whole for their whole user base. But those were the people who were really driving that share increase, the, the price increase. It disproportionately affects a retail investor, it's, right? Because they're the kind of people that are exactly. Yeah. So uh, picture it this way: like everybody's in a race, and there's institutional investors and retail investors out there on the racetrack. It's a NASCAR race; they're just going round and round in circles. And sure, all of a sudden, there's like this overhead deity type that slams on the brakes for the retail investors, while the institutional investors have no limits placed on them. So they what they what they needed to do at that point was close out the shares. It, it stopped that updraft on the stock price that we were talking about. And so it gave these people who didn't need to use the Robinhood platform essentially institutional money, the ability to get out of their trades at a lower price and with less punishment than they otherwise might have received. It kind of capped it, right? Like, like more or less. That that that's the the yeah. limit of my uh, knowledge, Mike. So you take it from here. Well, there's kind of a couple things. One is one of the most boring aspects of the financial markets, but that's actually really important for understanding how this works. It's very simple. When I buy and sell a stock or any sort of security, I don't do it anywhere but on my computer. That's the way the world works now. I'm not with you, like taking out a quill and a pen, and you know, ink and writing it out. And you give me this, and I doth proclaim that I now own a share of this company. Like that's not how that works. Here, here. In fact, it's even more. It's even more complicated than you think. When I go to Robinhood and I buy a share, what's actually happening under the hood is infinitely more complicated and uninteresting than you think but what's important to know is there is an there are a couple institutions but one important one called the depository trust clearing corporation the dtcc that acts as the corporation they're like the big warehouse in the middle of all of these financial transactions that make sure that when you say i bought something it actually happens because 
that doesn't just magically happen. It's like a very it's it's a series of accounts that that need to make sure. And if I short sell something and I need to deliver it, something needs to actually get delivered. Now, nowadays, like I said, it's not a physical thing, but it does need to get delivered. And so when Robinhood is allowing you to buy this stock, what you're doing is not actually buying something that Robinhood currently owns. What you're doing is buying something that Robinhood has an account with this clearinghouse to own. So you might have heard this story about a margin call or a capital call from the DTCC to Robinhood. So Robinhood's name implies that they're just looking out for the little guy, but they are a business. And we all have to acknowledge fairly that they are a business. And I think the number was something in the order of $3 billion that they were going to have to post, like cut a check, wire the money for that amount of money. Now, they, it was going to come back, but they still had to, it had to come from somewhere. $3 billion had to leave their books to go to this clearing entity to ensure that their clients could keep buying shares. So there's sort of that piece of it. There's the piece of this where purely for financial reasons, that's not a tenable position for them to be in. And it's not a position that reasonably a brokerage could be expected to plan for. So it, it would be, in my opinion, at least unreasonable to expect them to do that. Now, yeah, it yeah is I should have mentioned that they didn't stop the trading arbitrarily, but it had the yeah. impact that I mentioned earlier. Yeah. And it's, and, and I think there, it is a big responsibility and it's a big opportunity to be able to operate a brokerage like that and that it's a license to make a lot of money but there is a limit to what's reasonable to expect of them and to expect them to cut that check to allow people to keep doing something that was clearly speculative that's not obvious to me that that's the right thing to do so that's kind of one piece of it is there's a business reality that i think we all need to acknowledge but the other piece of it is it's it's confusing to draw the line between who are the the Wall Street bets people and who are the other people. But what is clear, regardless of when people got in or why, the trading volume for the GameStop stock was well out of whack for normal circumstances. So the people who were buying that, just based on the numbers, we're not doing it because of some fundamental belief in the long-term prospects of the company. And so even if those people didn't have what is arguably criminal intent, like the people at Wall Street Bets, they were still participating in manipulative market activity. Again, it's a hard to draw a line, like at what point of this cycle... Of yeah. I'm buying this because I know this is happening, but I'm not trying to make <laughs> like, like it's a little bit like isn't that exactly what this whole like this like this whole market is? It's just like you're like just buying and trading these like arbitrary kind of like pieces of property and like betting if they're gonna move one way yeah, or the other. It's like, like it's, it's a yes and no. It's a yes and a no. But it's it's I I I sort of agree with fundamentally what you're saying. Like I sort of agree with the idea that it's weird to talk about assigning value to these things that we can't see or touch or whatever. 
I do think it's worth noting that it's a really important part of our society. Like it is, regardless of your feelings about the ethics of how it operates, it's important that people have access to money so that they can start businesses and grow businesses. That's a big part of why our our country is as resilient as it is. But going back to like putting aside the rules and, and kind of the weirdness of the whole system, there is, we all have to acknowledge a, a difference between trying to take advantage of some well-known market trend, be it fundamental or technical, to make some money or make a ton of money or whatever, and intentionally participating in a manipulative scheme to make that happen, there is a difference of intent. And again, there's a weird part where like people start jumping on the bandwagon and it's not exactly their intent. But this, when the snowball started rolling down the hill, it started as a conspiracy to manipulate the price of a certain stock. And I think it's really hard for me to say Robinhood, even though like Robinhood is part of the anti-establishment, that they, them trying to stop manipulative activity, like it's weird that people want to have it both ways where they say, hey, hedge funds, stop doing manipulative activity. Robinhood, why'd you stop that manipulative activity? Like, I don't know. That's a little tough for me to swallow. It's a bit of the Spider-Man meme pointing at each other. Yeah. It is It is kind of funny how, like, the Wall Street bets crowd has kind of, like, made this a, uh, like, a morality thing. <laughs> but whatever. There's there's a whole lot of, I think, room to interpret <laughs> all oh, that stuff. There, but I, I like There's this. so much nuance. There are going to be so many good books and probably a movie. I don't think it'll be as good as the big short unless they get Christian Bale back in. But uh, like just sort of stepping back from this particular incident, though, I guess I wanted to wrap up by like kind of talking about more the long term picture, because to me, this I'm not even sure if it caps or if it's start. It's the start of something else. But to me, it kind of caps a troubling trend that I've seen since probably about the time we got into college, where ever since then, you're starting to see valuations of companies at really huge multiples of their earnings. So so essentially, a lot of companies are valued very highly relative to what they're making in the present, basically saying that at some point, in order to justify these share prices, they're going to need to make a lot more money. But to me, that means that investors have only really seen the stock market kind of go up in a sense and that it's sort of made people numb to these crazy, crazy valuations of what's actually happening in the business to what the share price is. And so my my question, and I have no idea where this is going, but my gut tells me it's nowhere good. Is that is that um, this this may be the start of something where there's a bit of a mob mentality trying to make a quick buck before things essentially go to hell for a share price. That's the cynic in me, but uh, it's there's it, no cynic in you. Yeah. <laughs> Um, it, it, it's, it, it's just a f- fascinating combination of economic factors, I think, that are 
leading us down a path. I'm not sure where it goes because there's a lot of chicanery in the financial markets, as Mike has pointed out. And um, it, it remains to be seen whether we can sort them out effectively, how to use the market, how to regulate it effectively, because he made a great point. It is one of the the American financial market has been one of the greatest like growth and prosperity generators the world has ever seen. But there have been points where it gets out of whack and got to find a way to tune up the machine. Well, I for one have really enjoyed sitting here and getting to bounce my own thoughts on it off of you two or my questions off of you two rather. So thanks for thanks for sharing some some uh some of your insights onto it is there anything else you guys want to talk about no i think jameson put a put a really good capper on it i think i i think just my final thought on it is it's it's really it's weird we live in a really weird time where income inequality and wealth inequality continues to grow in our country and the disparity between the real economy so like the economy of I look down the street and see our people's lives improving, our houses getting nicer, our cars getting newer. Is everybody's life like improving? Are they be, are they more productive? Are factories building more stuff? Is is innovation occurring? All the stuff that's the we look around and it's not just a piece of paper, it's the real economy. The disparity between that and the financial markets has probably never been greater. And that's a lot of what Jameson's point is. And it just, it comes back to this, this interesting dynamic where there's just a massive dissatisfaction and really understandable dissatisfaction. And that's where you get this mob mentality. And it's definitely not true that in America, a rising tide lifts all boats. It has been documented and proven it's not true. But a rising tide at least somewhat lifts most ships and people are much more satisfied and willing to sort of accept that the financial markets have a role when that's the case and it's just not the case and hasn't been for a while now. Completely agree. There's a whole there's a whole nother hour long podcast where we could talk about kind of the the connectivity of like that mentality and where it applies to all sorts of different (laughs) parts of our, our nation's kind of, or our world, I guess, like our, our take on (laughs) all kinds of uh, largely political issues, but we'll save that for another time. I was going to say like, we could go for another hour (laughs) on, cause we're, we're edging right up to, uh, quantitative easing, which is a fun topic, <laughs> but it's another hour. We touched on it in our other podcast. We got a little bit of that, a little QE chat. A little QE. Love it. So, I mean, yep. I yeah, love that, I mean, really, thank you guys for allowing me the space <laughs> to come on, chat with you. Um, needed, a, needed some time to vent um, and just work out my thoughts, but it's always great to connect with you guys two of the most insightful people I know and willing to ask questions that get straight to the heart of it. Quite a characterization because Kyle and I, uh, and this is just turning into what the kids would call a circle jerk. <laughs> but that's how we think of you. We definitely don't think of ourselves in that light, but this was a delight. It was nice to see Jameson and safely. I will add safely for the listeners. We have plans to do so safely, but we'll be seeing you soon. 
Yeah, can't wait for it, guys. Um, shall we discuss a couple things? Yeah, I guess we'll skip. All, All right. Well, then just don't say anything else. No, nah, no, just it's don't. not even worth, it's not it. worth it. Kyle. Uh, usually at this point I do thank you, so I'll do those quickly. First, I'll thank Kevin McLeod. He didn't have a chance to use the not top three music today, uh, but he did intro us, and he is probably outroing us. If not at this moment, then very. Yeah, soon. I hope so because so if you, he Kevin. isn't outroing us right now, that means that either our intro something's happened or outro are way too long. All right. Well, hopefully you're listening to Kevin's uh, stinky beats at this very moment. Like they're slowly picking up and getting a little louder. Yeah. And so hopefully you can barely hear me as I say thank you to my sister Erin for her artwork work on our artwork, (laughs) which is fantastic. (laughs) Uh, Obviously, there's more of her work to be seen on Instagram. Just go to Sant Design there. That's where it is. And uh, this is the time when I talk about our social meds. Uh, you can check out our Instagram page uh, at top10km with the 10 spelled out T-E-N. You can check out our Facebook group, Top 10 with Kyle and Mike. You can send us an email at top10km at gmail.com. The 10 is also spelled out T-E-N. And if you're loving on our social meds, uh, why don't you take a little trip on down memory lane I don't actually know what the account is called now, but Caroline, our social media director slash my lovely wife, has recently rebranded as Caroline Giuliano Photography. Uh, So check out her photographs there. Give me some dough. Um, And then finally, I'm sure you're the real economy, baby. Oh, baby. I'm sure you're listening to us on some sort of listening app, but if you're looking for another one... You can check us out on Apple Podcast app, Stitcher, Spotify, Podbean, pretty much wherever podcasts can be found. So that's what I got to say, baby. That's it. We're done here. Thanks, boys. Peace. Peace.